Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the luxury train Orange Blossom Special inspired an iconic Florida song in the 1930s. Everybody plays it a little bit differently, so it's hard to say what my favorite version of it is because everybody puts their own stamp on it when they play it. As we self-quarantine for the coronavirus, we'll remember the yellow fever epidemic of 1888. People just started panicking because they understood how infectious the disease could be and how violent it could be. And we'll discuss the documentary Harvest of Shame about migrant farm workers. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. That's a 1982 recording of legendary Florida musicians Gamble Rogers and Will McLean performing the song Orange Blossom Special at the Florida Folk Festival in White Springs. From 1925 through 1953, the luxury passenger train called the Orange Blossom Special traveled from Penn Station in New York City to Miami. Other Florida stops included Jacksonville, West Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood, and Miami before the train returned north via Winter Haven, Bradenton, Tampa, St. Petersburg, Orlando, Gainesville, and Tallahassee. The Orange Blossom Special came to Florida between mid-December and mid-April. Even more famous than this luxurious train and its wealthy passengers is the song Orange Blossom Special. Well, as the story goes, um, both Chubby Wise and Irvin Rouse uh, visited the Orange Blossom Special when it passed through Jacksonville on an exhibition tour in 1938. Randy Knowles is author of the book Fiddler's Curse, the untold story of Irvin T. Rouse, Chubby Wise, Johnny Cash, and the Orange Blossom Special. It's hard to imagine now, but this was just a huge deal. Um, this train had um, brand new um, diesel electric locomotives and Pullman cars, and it was on an exhibition tour between Washington and Miami, and it stopped in every city of any size uh, along the way for people to look at it. And now we think, well, gee, it was just a train, but at the time it was like the space shuttle coming through town. Um, in Jacksonville, schools closed. Um, they had a turnout of about 30,000 people during the two days. The train was parked there just to come and look at it. They were just awestruck by it because of its design and its technology and everything it represented. And uh, Chubby and Irvin were not immune to that. And uh, they visited the train when it came through on the exhibition tour and 
And uh, as the story goes, we're inspired to write the song. Even though only Irvin T. Rouse's name appears on the copyright for the music of Orange Blossom Special, the traditional story that Chubby Wise co-wrote the song with Rouse has gained widespread acceptance. Before his death in 1996, Chubby Wise repeated his claims of co-writing Orange Blossom Special. I went to Jacksonville and uh, Irvin Rouse and myself wrote the Orange Blossom Special in 1939. Give us all the history or detail you can remember about helping Irvin Rouse right there. All right, Irvin was a, a good friend of mine, and he came to Jacksonville, and uh, they had really, the Orange Blossom Special was one of the most, I guess the first, you might say, streamlined train that the Seaboard ever had. And they had it in Jacksonville at the Union Station there for people to kind of go through and look at, see, and admire the new streamlined pretty train, the Orange Blossom Special. So Irvin and I ran out of something to do, and about 2 o'clock in the morning we went through that train, me and Irvin Rouse. So he went home with me, and that time I lived on 809 East Adams Street, I'll never forget it. In Jacksonville? In Jacksonville. Irvin went home with me and eat breakfast, so about 4 o'clock in the morning he and I sat on the side of my bed and took our fiddle out and said, let's write, he called everybody Doc, he said, Doc, let's write one call of the Orange Blossom Special. I said, all right, Irving, we'll just do it. And we got our two fiddles out on the side of the bed. Now, listen to this. And in about 45 minutes, we had just about written the complete melody of the Orange Blossom Special. Now, I don't remember where I wrote the whistle part or the fiddling part. It's been long. I haven't got that good a memory. But I know we did almost completely well. When he started to leave his chubby, the doctor said, let's go down and get that thing copyrighted. He said that we might have a good fiddle tune there. And I said, Irvin, I don't have any time to fool with no fiddle tune, buddy. I've got to check on my cab. I went to work at 5 o'clock in the morning then, driving a 10 cent taxi cab. I told you you could go for a dime then, see. Yeah. I said, I've, that's when my daughter was, you might say, a crawling baby. I said, I've got to go to work, check on my cab, and try to make some, some food for my family here. I ain't got time to fool no fiddle tune. I said, if you can do anything with it, it's all yours. I remember them very words, if it was yesterday. And he did something with it. Granny uh, yeah. went and, and had it... Uh, put in his name, of course, Irvin T. Rouse. And he and Gordy, I had nothing to do with the words. He and, he and his brother Gordon wrote the words on it. And looking on it coming down the railroad track, and he went and had it copyrighted, and I'm so grateful it didn't hurt my statue none at all as a fiddle player. I gave him my half of it. And if he was alive, he'd tell you the same thing. Here's Chubby's own The Orange Blossom Special by the man that wrote it.
Chubby Wise is considered one of the greatest fiddlers in country music. At age 15, Wise started playing in Jacksonville nightclubs and joined the Jubilee Hillbillies in 1938. In 1942, he started playing at the Grand Ole Opry with Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Boys and recorded with many other artists over the years. In 1984, he moved back to Florida, recording and performing infrequently. Irvin T. Rouse lived from 1917 to 1981 and is also considered to be a great fiddle player. Irvin worked with his brother Gordon, traveling from Florida to New York in the 1930s to record and perform. Irvin suffered from mental illness and alcoholism, spending the last decades of his life playing in remote clubs near the Everglades for tips. Irvin's brother Gordon Rouse always maintained that Chubby Wise did not co-write the Orange Blossom special. The truth is what hurts. Yeah. Well, what, uh, what do you think about this gentleman, Mr. Chubby Wise, uh, telling that he was a co-writer of the Orange Blossom special? Is there anything <clears throat> to that? Well, Chubby Wise never heard the Orange Blossom special until we, we, we after we had wrote it. There you go. As far as uh, Chubby's concerned, he met us before we wrote the Orange Blossom special. But we later on is when we really wrote the Orange Blossom special. And we did, we wrote it starting at Miami, 21st Street and 7th Avenue in Miami, when we seen it Christian. That's, that's when we started to read it, right, right that, that day that it was Christian. But he's telling that he uh, <coughs> helped to write that thing in a hotel room or in his apartment one night. And as you say, there's nothing to that. Is that right? Oh, well, <laughs> it's, it's very, very easily to say you done something sure. that you didn't do. Right. And uh, you tell people you did it, and, and the people don't know whether you, whether you did it or don't. Right. Not. That's for sure. And he's telling... And uh, so uh, he just told... Uh, any time he said anything about it, he had anything to do with writing it, all untrue. He never even heard it until it was already on the, on the thing and being on the market and everything. Right. And uh, then, then he, later on through the years, he, he made out like, just because he met us early in Jacksonville, that he <laughs> helped write, but he did not. During his research for the book The Fiddler's Curse, Randy Knowles concluded that the traditional belief that Chubby Wise co-wrote the Orange Blossom special with Irvin T. Rouse is false. Well, the accepted story was uh, that it was written, as I said, in Jacksonville by Chubby Wise and Irvin Rouse after they toured the Orange Blossom special on its exhibition tour. Uh, this was the story that Chubby told repeatedly over the years, and it's the story that made it into uh, the history books and, and uh, that Chubby propagated. Um, it turns out not to have been true because my research indicated that the, the song had been written and copyrighted prior to the exhibition tour, so it couldn't possibly have happened the way Chubby described. But um, 
Irvin was not a person. He was he was um, he was had some serious mental problems. He was diagnosed as schizophrenic when he was young. Uh, he had very few social skills, very little knowledge of copyrights and business, and and uh, he really never, in his lifetime, stood up for himself and and said, you know, none of this is true. I I found out that it wasn't strictly accurate. At least I got a hint that it wasn't when I was doing a story for Jacksonville Magazine on songs that have a relationship to Jacksonville, Florida. And Jacksonville has a, a pretty rich musical heritage, and Orange Blossom Special, of course, is one that was reputed to have been written in Jacksonville. And I tracked down um, Irvin's widow and reached her on the telephone and, and told her I was doing the story and how I understood that her husband and Chubby Wise had written this song in 1938. And she cut me off right there and said, I'm so tired of hearing that. I've heard that for 60 years. It's not true. Chubby Wise had absolutely nothing to do with, with writing that song. It just makes me so mad that people continue to think that. And and uh, she just really got agitated. And, and uh, then as I talked to her more and found out about Irvin's life, and, and uh, uh, it, it occurred to me that really the interesting story was not so much who really wrote the song. It was really more about Irvin and Chubby themselves and their lives because they were just uh, very tragic figures, both of them, and uh, brilliant in their own way but, but deeply flawed. And if you were a writer of fiction, you couldn't have made up any more oddball characters than, than Irvin and Chubby. So we were able to dispense with the who wrote the song pretty fast because it was easy to see just by looking at the copyright uh, on the original sheet music, which I did when I went to the um, copyright office in Washington, D.C., and they looked it up for me. Uh, it was easy to see that Chubby's story didn't hold up. Um, what Chubby did do was, was popularize the song in the early days because he was, um, as you know, the probably the greatest, arguably the greatest bluegrass fiddler of all time and, and was maybe Bill Monroe's best bluegrass fiddler. And Bill Monroe was the originator of bluegrass music pretty much. And uh, Chubby played the song all over the world with Bill Monroe and, and recorded it. And, and it was eventually, of course, picked up by other mainstream artists. And uh, so you could certainly say Chubby uh, Chubby got the song out into the mainstream, but he unquestionably, in, in my view, did not help write it. Audiences continue to love the song Orange Blossom Special. Playing this virtuosic piece almost guarantees a standing ovation from bluegrass and country music fans. Even rock bands and symphony orchestras are among the amazingly diverse groups who have recorded and performed this song. I enjoy Johnny Cash's version, which is kind of ironic because it's a fiddle tune, but there is not a fiddle to be heard in that song. It's a saxophone and a harmonica. Um, I've also heard it played, uh, as I said, by symphony orchestras. Those are always fun to hear. Um, uh, the Grateful Dead have recorded it. Uh, everybody plays it a little bit differently, so it's hard to say what my favorite version of it is because everybody puts their own stamp on it when they play it. Randy Knowles is author of the book Fiddler's Curse, the untold story of Irvin T. Rouse, Chubby Wise, Johnny Cash, and the Orange Blossom Special. This is The String Cheese Incident playing the iconic song.
as you practice social distancing, it's a great time to visit myfloridahistory.org. You can binge watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, we're all dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, but this isn't the first time that Florida has faced a serious health crisis. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Back in the 19th century, when Florida's population was much smaller, but especially towards the latter half of the century, when it was becoming really a resort destination and people were coming here in the wintertime, we had a series of epidemics centered around the yellow fever virus, which is a vector-borne virus that we know now is transmitted by mosquitoes. But in the 1870s and 1880s, Floridians had no idea how this disease was spread. And there were several small towns throughout the South, including some cities in Florida that were affected. But in the late summer, in early fall of 1888, the city of Jacksonville, which at the time numbered about 19,000 residents, was acutely affected by this yellow fever epidemic. And it started when a saloon owner from Tampa had traveled to Jacksonville. His name was McCormick, and he came down with disease. And people just started panicking because they understood how infectious the disease could be and how violent it could be. And the fact that the rate of death was so high for yellow fever, people started panicking. And when this particular person passed away, the hotel he was staying in in Jacksonville, they actually burned it to the ground. So starting in the summer of 1888, it really began kind of this mass hysteria. The city emptied and dropped from 19,000 to 14,000 people within a matter of weeks. People just fled the city and health officials really had no idea what to do. So they set up quarantine camps. They set up armed guards throughout the entire city. Nobody could leave or come into the city of Jacksonville. And because they didn't understand really what caused the disease, they kind of started really just grasping at straws and had a, a series of different antidotes that they thought might help to end this epidemic quickly. But unfortunately, the numbers just continued to rise into the fall of 1888. Well, Ben, you have here a collection of newspaper articles about the yellow fever that's uh, assembled into a scrapbook. Yeah, what we're looking at here is a, a really fascinating piece, very unique piece. Somebody who was apparently a, a resident of Jacksonville compiled all of these editorial pieces and reports on the progress of the yellow fever epidemic. And as I mentioned before, the city really didn't know what to do. So in a few of these articles, they talk about what they call the concussion method. And there was a local militia group that just fired off cannons because they thought that the concussion from the booms would somehow kill the pathogen in the air and the gunpowder would would kill the pathogen. They also went around the city. There was a sanitary association that was formed, and they went around the city burning pine and tar because they thought the smoke might you know, help to disinfect and to clean the air. And as I said before, they burned the hotel from that one individual who was sleeping there. So when somebody was sick, they would put a yellow flag in front of their house, and then if somebody died, a black flag would go up, and that would tell neighbors you know, to stay away, don't get near us. Health workers were dying. They brought in nurses and doctors from all over the U.S., and these people were becoming ill. In fact, all of these newspapers clippings came from the Jacksonville Times Union. The editor of the newspaper succumbed to the disease and died in 1888. So it was an indiscriminate killer. So it was killing African-Americans, you know, white people, visitors from the north. It really didn't matter. So there was a lot of hysteria and panic. 
They also talk about statewide quarantines that were going on. So they wouldn't allow people to come into Jacksonville, but folks were getting on the trains and trying to make their way to Tallahassee, to Atlanta, Georgia, as far north as Chattanooga, Tennessee. And there were actually armed protesters at the train station that would not let the train stop. People said, turn around and go back. We will not let you into our city. So these refugees were essentially just destitute. And inside the city, farmers couldn't bring in food. You know, we see now a disruption of work. Back then, people couldn't work. You know, they shut down businesses. People were starving. They couldn't get food. And children were orphaned. It was really a panicked situation. And a lot was going on in a very short amount of time. And the city of Jacksonville was really just decimated. Can the yellow fever epidemic of 1888 teach us anything that is useful in today's coronavirus world? Absolutely. I think one of the biggest things that came out of the yellow fever epidemic outbreak of 1888 in Jacksonville was the creation of the State Board of Public Health in 1889. And then in 1900, further research by Walter Reed pointed to the idea that a certain species of mosquito was actually passing on the pathogen, and then we could institute other methods to control mosquitoes rather than actually distancing ourselves from other people. So this was a different kind of disease and how it was carried. So, you know, those types of measures were put in place, but the creation of a State Board of health actually helped to unify the communication efforts. So in 1888, it was very difficult for Jacksonville residents to talk to other folks and to get accurate numbers of who was sick, who was dying, when they were infected, all of that kind of information. You know, now we've used those lessons over a century later to disseminate information much, much faster and collate that information and then use that information in beneficial ways. Interesting. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. If you'd like to see the scrapbook we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. The documentary Harvest of Shame introduced many Americans to the plight of migrant farm workers, Florida filmmaker Lisa Mills discusses the documentary with Holly Baker. In 1960, a CBS documentary aired on television that shocked the nation. Harvest of Shame exposed the exploitation of migrant agricultural workers in America and shined a light on their harsh living conditions in Florida and other states across the country. Dr. Lisa Mills is Associate Professor of Film at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. She talked to me about the groundbreaking documentary Harvest of Shame. Well, Harvest of Shame is one of the seminal American documentaries that really established the social justice documentary genre in the United States. It was actually made by a very famous journalist, Edward R. Murrow, and his team uh, at CBS. And what they decided to do was go and follow migrants from South Florida all the way up into the Northeast as they followed the crops and harvested them, documenting their lives, the way that they lived, the kind of food that they ate, the way that families were challenged, in particular the way that children were challenged. Much of Harvest of Shame focused on migrant workers from Belle Glade, Florida and Immokalee, Florida, two farming communities near Lake Okeechobee known for fertile soil that produced tomatoes, beans, and sugarcane. The documentary starts out in Belle Glade, Florida, in South Florida, where you see workers that are being called to work in the fields. They're loaded on jalopies, old school buses, flatbed trucks, and they're taken out into the fields to harvest tomatoes. 
And then the documentary follows them all the way up the eastern seaboard as different crops become ripe. And as Edward R. Murrow famously said, they follow the sun to the next crop. There's also a very famous juxtaposition in the documentary where he shows how these migrant workers are traveling in unair-conditioned buses, many of them African-American, forced to stop on the side of the road to have a sandwich or go to the bathroom because they weren't allowed into a lot of dining establishments at that time. And so he juxtaposes their form of transport with the way that the fruits and vegetables they harvested are transported on air-conditioned boxcars. So obviously what Murrow and his team were trying to show is that in the United States at that time, we treated our harvested fruits and vegetables better than the people who did the harvesting. In the documentary, Edward R. Murrow called the migrant workers the forgotten people, the undereducated, and the underfed, Americans were particularly appalled by the living conditions of the children of migrant workers. At this time, in the late 50s, early 60s, the children of migrant workers in the United States really weren't receiving much of an education. You see in the documentary some migrant housing that doesn't have running water, that doesn't have indoor plumbing. And it was aired the day after Thanksgiving in 1960 at dinner time, and American families were shocked to see that Americans were living in this way. Of course, the agriculture industry did not take too well to this documentary, and it actually can be marked as the beginning of a very difficult relationship between the CBS network and the government of Florida, which continued on through the Nixon administration, when the Nixon administration actually tried to have two television station licenses taken away from the Graham Company in Jacksonville and in Miami. Harvest of Shame was Edward R. Murrow's call to action. The documentary led to legislation in Congress to fund health services and educational opportunities for migrant workers and their children. The documentary also set the tone for generations of investigative journalists. NBC returned to Belglade in 1990 and CBS went back in 1995 and in 2010. Each time, the filmmakers discovered that migrant workers in Florida were still facing harsh conditions and low wages. Dr. Lisa Mills. There have been updates of the film made. They've been made for television, and, and then they've uh, shown in some film festivals. And, of course, you still have very active social justice community working with the migrants uh, all along the seaboard, particularly in South Florida with the tomato picker still and also here in Central Florida with the workers in Apopka. So I wish I could say that things had gotten dramatically better for migrant workers in Florida, but I think it could be argued that things still have a long way to go. Children are receiving more education. Maybe the housing's improved a bit, but we still you know, have large chain grocery stores in Florida that are unwilling to pay an extra penny a pound for these migrant workers to earn a living wage. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. 
Until then, you can find all sorts of interesting content at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein, and the program is edited by John White. Have a safe and healthy week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.